0: We are in the third week of our sermon series, hashtag blessed by the word, and we are still in the book of Psalms. Uh, Today we'll be looking at Psalm 73. So if you want to go ahead and find it in your Bibles, you can find it there. If you're using a pew Bible, it's uh, on page 485. So far in our series, we've been looking at what it means to be truly blessed and we've been taking a a look through the use of a hashtag right that playful use of social media labeling where people often take this hashtag and they'll stick it on different posts uh, about their health or their family or new jobs and the like and the question that we've kind of been asking is you know if that is how we determine whether or not we're blessed by the good things that happen in our life what happens when the good thing ends What happens when the blessing is no longer there? What happens when we lose the good job or when our health declines or when the relationship that we found was really dear to us is no longer as strong as it once was? It prompts us to ask ourselves on what basis do we determine whether or not we are blessed. And something that I've said every week, and I'm going to say it again today, is one of the most beautiful things that God has desired to convince us of is that there is a deep and abiding blessing A blessing not determined by any circumstance other than our relationship with Him. That that is the basis on which we determine whether or not we are blessed. And it's God's Word that guides us into this relationship. And so we are blessed by the Word in that it guides us and tells us how we relate to Him. And so just to quickly review, in our first week we looked at Psalm 1. And we saw two ways that are presented, right? We saw the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And this psalm uses the imagery of two plants uh, to teach that the righteous person, the one who delights in the law of the Lord, God's word, his instruction, and meditates on it day and night will flourish. But the one who ignores God's word, the wicked, they will perish like chaff. Then last week we looked at Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, we saw how God's perfection, His holiness, is revealed to us not only in creation, but then the middle of that psalm especially shows us that God's holiness is revealed to us through His Word. We get a clearer picture of God's perfection and His righteous standard, the ways that He calls us to live, and how perfect those ways are. But we also see, as we look upon God and His holiness and His perfection, immediately we can look at ourselves and see how we do not reach that standard. And so the word reveals our sin. But as our sin is revealed to us, we also see the perfection of God's grace revealed to us. That's what we looked at last week in Psalm 19. That even though we stand next to God and we fall way short of his glory, his grace fills the gap, right? His grace extends to us. Now, whereas our last two passages have been explicitly about God's word, our passage this morning is noticeably less so. It does have strong thematic connections to the other passages, though. Like Psalm 1, Psalm 73 captures the struggle that often takes place in discerning the difference between these two ways, the way of those who follow the Lord and the way of those who do not. Like Psalm 19, Psalm 73 shows us, That a reorientation takes place. That when we really get a picture of who God is, it transforms our perspective. It changes the way that we view our world and our life. And so while it's a departure from the Psalms which speak explicitly of the goodness of the word, we'll see today that Psalm 73 really functions kind of as a testimony. It kind of takes us along in a narrative, where we get to walk along the experience of someone and maybe put ourselves in their shoes or maybe see that in the Word of God we have recorded for us some of the same feelings that we have felt and some of the same struggles and wrestlings that we have experienced. And we'll see in this psalm that uh, there's hope to be found in Psalm 73 of how we might be relieved of some of these burdens that we carry. A little background before we begin, Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph, and Scripture tells us that Asaph was a director of worship, so you can imagine Luke Link, but his name's Asaph. He was a director of worship in the temple, so he led the singing of these psalms, and he led people in these liturgical responses. He served during the time of David and of Solomon. And because of the personal nature of this psalm, it's likely that he even wrote it. Even if he didn't write it, he at least led people in singing it. And it's good for us to remember that even though our Bible presents the Psalms kind of as one unit, one book, there are actually five books that make up the book of Psalms as we see it today. And Psalm 73 is the beginning of this third book. The first two books are comprised mostly of David's Psalms. This third book is one that is targeted more at leading the congregation as a whole in the reflection of who God is and how to process some of the difficult things of life. And we see in the third book of the Psalms that it's filled with more lamentation and complaint on the status of God's people. And sometimes there doesn't even seem to be a bright spot on the horizon. But Psalm 73 does have a bright spot. So often these Psalms served to guide people in remembering that they are truly blessed, even when circumstances don't necessarily demonstrate that whenever they would question and wonder, is it really worth being one of God's people? Now, we're still at a period where you're getting to know me as a pastor and as a preacher, and I'm still getting to know you. I'm still trying to learn names and still trying to learn some of your stories, and it's been wonderful to get to know you. But I thought I would step out on a limb a little bit here and, and reveal a little bit more about myself to you. So I'm being vulnerable, all right? So I'm asking, I'm put, there's a lot of trust and I'm putting your way, okay? So when I went to seminary and I started dressing like an adult, um, there, was, there was a quarterback in Washington named RG3. And you might remember something about RG3. He wore crazy socks. Do you remember that? Maybe not. News to you. Okay. He wore crazy socks all the time. So it became this thing that friends of ours in the churches I worked at, whenever they would be in a store and they would see a pair of crazy socks they would buy these crazy socks and give them to me. So what this has resulted in is I have a drawer full of crazy socks. And uh, it has given me an excuse to collect some more. So I'm going to show you my socks today, all right? This is a little embarrassing. Today I am wearing Mr. Rogers' socks. Yeah, here we go. Now, why is the pastor wearing Mr. Rogers' socks? That's probably what you're wondering. Well, you probably know I'm from Western PA, uh, coming to you from Western PA, and Mr. Rogers was a really big deal in Pittsburgh and in Western Pennsylvania. The town we moved from was about, it was less than an hour from where he was born. There's this beautiful park that used to be his father's or his grandfather's land has this amazing waterfall on it called Buttermilk Falls. So we love to spend time there. So you, you spend time in Western PA, you start to feel like you're connected to Mr. Rogers in some way. How many of you watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood growing up, or your kids watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Okay, so you know the man I'm talking about. Now for those of you of a younger generation, how many of you know Daniel Tiger Neighborhood, right? Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood? Okay, there we go. It's funny to see some people uh, in the middle of their life familiar with Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. They obviously have grandkids. The reason I bring this up is, um, you know, back when I was a kid, I watched Mr. Rogers, and admittedly, I love to watch picture-picture and see how crayons were made. I found that fascinating, but I really found his songs kind of boring. I kind of felt like he was a little dorky. And so I wasn't really like that into Mr. Rogers, but as a father and as an adult, I'm amazed at this guy. You, you, as an adult, you realize this guy was a genius in helping kids process really difficult things, and he had a heart to do that. And of course, there's movies out right now which you can learn about his life, and I would encourage you to do that, but he wrote a song in 1968 that he actually read before Congress whenever public television needed funding. They were going to have their funding uh, cut in half. And there's this uh, great YouTube video, you can look it up on your own time, of him reading the lyrics of this song and how it helps children process some of the difficult things. And this is the song that he wrote. Now, I'm not singing it. That's for another week for me to be vulnerable with you. What do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite? When the whole wide world Seems oh so wrong, and nothing you do seems very right. The song goes on with lines to help children learn how to express their emotions as well as how to get a hold of them and have some control of them. This was Mr. Rogers' way of helping people process hurt and anger and pain and frustration without inflicting it on others in the world, which is a very Great act, uh, act of common grace that he uh, would lead our generation in. And the reason why I bring this up is because this is kind of how Psalm 73 works as well. This psalm will show us a very personal way how we can probably relate to the words of the psalmist, how we can experience anger and frustration, and we can get to the very edge of our self control, and our feet might be feeling as they are slipping, and we lose our perspective. And just like Mr. Rogers' song, this psalm shows us how our perspective can be changed and we can enter a period where we encounter God's presence and we can be restored back to right thinking and self-control. You see, the key to understanding Psalm 73 and the power behind it is to connect it uh, to our lives at an emotional level. This is a psalm for those instances in life where you get so mad And so angry that you can be tempted to question and doubt the ethics that you practice. You know, does the way that I live really even matter? Does it seem to be getting me anywhere? You begin to question, is it worth being one of God's people? Can you relate to that feeling? Some of us may feel this way about society and the political sphere. We might look at the world at large in general and we might see the decisions that people make almost to spite God. And we might see that they live in ease. Maybe you feel that way about some of the politicians that you watch who seem to abuse and burden people to benefit themselves. There was a time when I used to listen to political talk radio every day. And it got to a point where I needed to just stop listening. I found myself getting so frustrated and so worked up. I was being incited by the commentary to feel this way. It was not good It was not good for me. But there are even more personal reasons that we feel like this. Maybe it's happened to you in your child's academics or sports. Have you ever encountered a teacher or a coach or a league that seemed to reward lesser talent with playing time and positions and played favorites while your kid was left on the bench? Have you ever had a teacher that just seemed to really dislike your kid? Like they had more patience for other folks, but they had no patience for your child? they weren't even giving your kid a chance. Maybe you're experiencing it in the workplace. You're trying your very best to be a good teacher, to be the best manager, to be the best salesman or nurse, the best employee or boss you can be. You show up on time. You work extra hours. You try to work equitably with your colleagues, and instead of getting ahead, instead of Getting some respect instead of being treated well, you're mistreated, you're overlooked, you're ignored. To add salt to the wound, the people who cheat, who manipulate, who don't have the same honor that you have, the people who betray and act selfishly, life seems to only get better for them. That they still have a job, that they still are working up the ladder, that they got the pay raise. Maybe it's happened to you in a friendship or a marriage. You've had a friend or a spouse mistreat you or betray your trust. And they've moved on and through the wonders of Facebook, they're hashtag blessed. But maybe you're sitting and it seems like your life is still left in pieces. And they go on dream vacations and have a dream house. And you're just struggling to make ends meet you know the feeling I'm getting at. It's that feeling that eats away at us, that makes us begin to question and get angry and ask, is God's way really worth living? And that's what Psalm 73 is about. This psalm is such a blessing because in this psalm, God guides us to his blessing by giving us words to use to express those feelings and frustration. And like any good song, including good church music, what makes it good is it helps us give voice to the emotions that we feel. And ultimately, it reminds us only an encounter with God is the place where we can find healing. So let's get into our passage this morning, Psalm 73, beginning at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, well, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, well, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought, How to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Let's pause here. Here we have the situation. The psalmist begins by stating a truth that he does not want the readers to miss. God is truly good to Israel, to those who are upright in heart. Yet even though this is true, the next several verses set the scene for us of his experience. He states that he was brought to a point where he almost slipped, where he lost his footing, where he almost gave up and gave in on how God calls his people to live. And the issue that he states at the very start is found in verse 3, that he was envious of the arrogant. When he saw their prosperity, it really got to him. And he goes on to describe the prosperity that he sees. As he looks at, from his perspective, they have no pangs until death in other words they're living fat and happy they don't experience trouble and difficulty they just seem to have a life that is filled with ease they're not stricken like the rest of mankind he writes and so from his perspective it's these people that don't follow god who have a life of ease they don't seem to have any problems now we have to remember that throughout all of god's words There are instructions to follow, and in simplest terms, God is very clear. As you follow these instructions, you will find blessing. If you don't follow them, you will not find blessing. But in this instance, it seems that the very people who ignore and break God's law, the very people who seem to just have no care about God and what he says, are the same people who seem untouched by the hardships and tragedies of life. Using the imagery of clothing, he writes that they are covered, because of this ease of life, they're covered with pride and violence. They speak with malice, they threaten oppression, and they speak against God. They seem to rule the world with their words and their way of life. And to make matters worse, their prosperity is having its effect on God's people. God's people, who are steeped in the same words as the psalmist are starting to begin to believe that maybe these people are on to something. And so it says that the people turn to them, and they're asking, how can God know? Does God really know what he's talking about? As if they're questioning God's truthfulness and knowledge. He says the people inevitably find no fault with the wicked. Conveys the idea that if it's working for them, it must be right. He says, Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. And so the psalmist is wrestling with his envy, and he's wrestling with this bitterness that is in his heart and his soul. And he's following God, and he looks around, and he sees people that don't, people that are living in opposition, and they have no problems or pain. His experience seems the opposite. The psalmist is feeling as if all his experience... All his obedience to God is in vain. He writes that instead of ease and comfort and prosperity, his, his life has been different. He's stricken and rebuked all day, every day. He says, you know, if I had even stooped to their level, if I had even spoken in the way that they do, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. It's kind of like just out of a sense of duty He's holding on to what is right, even though in his heart he doesn't have the heart to do it. He's almost bought into the lie, and he's so envious he was this close to giving in. But he knows that if he did, he would lead potentially many others astray. And as he's trying to make sense of it, he's just wearied. It just doesn't make sense to him. And what we're seeing here is a crisis of faith. The psalmist is tempted to desire something he did not have. <clears throat> the people who ignore God had it. They were not living in the ways that God had promised would bring someone into blessing. And here he was, experiencing hardship. You See, the problem is that the reality doesn't seem to match his worldview. He has followed God's law and believed in God's truth. He's hoped in God's promises, and right now it does not look as if God is holding up his end of the deal. Maybe you've been in this position. Do you ever look around and look at other folks and say, man, she doesn't seem to have any trouble making ends meet. He always seems to get the big projects that lead to the big bonuses. How did they afford that vacation?" Doesn't anybody see how they get to where they are? Doesn't anyone see that they lie? Doesn't anyone see that they manipulate? Doesn't anyone see that they've cheated and that they gossip and that they talk? Doesn't anyone else see this? That's how the psalmist was feeling. Until verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God... Then I discern their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's when the psalmist enters into the sanctuary that his perspective changes. The word for sanctuary conveys the meaning of. Being in the presence of God. Having an encounter with God. It's God's presence and his realness that reaffirms the truth. The way that he's been called to live is true. And it shakes him loose of this train of thought. Whereas the psalmist admitted that he was being tempted to slip and to stumble. That he felt he was on unstable and shaky ground. When he encounters God he realizes he is on firm ground. And it's those who are not listening and following the Lord that are on the slippery path. And he is struck with the revelation that the prosperity of which he was so envious, this ease of life that they are enjoying in this season, it's fleeting and it vanishes. Just like a bad dream when we awake, that's how quickly their ease will be gone. It does not last. And just like in Psalm 19, as the psalmist encounters God and he kind of gets this revelation of the, the big view of who God is and what the future holds, he sees his own sin, and he understands the darkness of his own heart. Let's look at verse 21. He says, When my soul was embittered, I, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. We can see his perspective has changed. He no longer wants the prosperity that he so envied. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It's when the psalmist has this encounter with God that his perspective is changed. It's when he enters God's presence that God meets him, and he's rescued from this slippery place. So I just want to quickly point out three things that God does in this encounter. And this is something that is helpful to us as we think about how we can be rescued From this moment, these dark places. The first thing is God gave him a glimpse of the future. He sees very clearly when he has this encounter with God of what the future holds, that he will be led into glory, that it will be through God's counsel, that he will be received into God's presence, into his glory. But for the wicked, it will not be that way, that someday there will be a recompense. So even though his experience was daily hardship and the the wicked seemed to live at ease, God's presence, the realness, confirmed to him what the future held. That for the people who ignore God and live for themselves, they'll get what they deserve. But for those who remain faithful, there will be blessing beyond deserving. God's presence wakes him up from this. Wakes him up from the daydream and gives him a glimpse of the future. And it reorients his perspective. The second thing that God does, he not only gives him a glimpse of the future, but he redefines what true prosperity is, what blessing is. By the end of the psalm, it's very clear that it is only in the presence of God and in closeness and nearness to him that one finds true blessing. See, at the start of the psalm, all the prosperity that he's envious of is material. And it's, it's circumstantial. It's, a, it's an ease of life. It's a wealth. It's a power that one has in its in themselves from the material blessings that they have but after he encounters God his prosperity his view on prosperity and blessing is redefined God's presence and faithfulness are now more treasured than anything else he says there's nothing on earth i desire besides you because without God one has no future see when we encounter the living God and we understand how blessed and prosperous we are with him, it changes our view of what we treasure. The third thing that we see is that when he gets this encounter with God and this big view of who God is and prosperity, he's humbled by God. God humbles him. When the psalmist finally sees things from God's perspective, he also sees himself from God's perspective. He sees how beastly he has acted towards God and how faithful God has remained to him. Now, the writer of Psalm 73 was living at a time when all of God's word, all of the worship of Israel, all the liturgies were tied to a place. They were tied to the sanctuary. That is where God's presence was made manifest to the people. It's where God revealed himself to his people. And at that time, God was pointing them forward to a day when all his promises would be made true. But we live at a different time. We live at a time when God's presence is not tied down to a place. It's not tied down to a temple, but it is present in many places through the Holy Spirit. Like it was back then, God's word still speaks to us, and it still directs our hearts and reorients us, pointing us to the same source of fulfillment of all these promises of blessing. It's through the Holy Spirit as we read God's word that we too can have an encounter with God that reorients our perspective. Though we do not live at the time of Christ, God's living and active word brings us to encounter Christ in a real way. And it's when encounters like that take place that our perspective can be changed. You see, when we look to Christ, God changes our perspective and it happens again in these same three ways. When we look to Christ We see a fulfillment of the future. We get a glimpse of the way things are. You know, part of what really gets under our skin is that there seems to be no justice. The title of this sermon is, Does God See My Pain? And we wrestle with the fact that there just seems to be no justice, that people go on living the way that they live. And when will justice be done? When will I finally receive what I should deserve for being obedient? and for being one who follows the way of the Lord. And see, when we look to Christ, we see that justice has been done on our behalf. We look to Christ, we see that if it's someone in the church that we're envious of, or someone in the church that has wronged us or has sinned, that has departed from God's ways, and yet they're a true child of God, we know that when we look to the cross, that has been paid for. And yet the cross also speaks of a future judgment that is to come. That for those who choose to continue ignoring God and his ways, there will be justice done. And we do not need to let it get under our skin. God is the God who sees all. And injustice does not escape his view. And so when we know that, when we get a glimpse of our future, we can have find rest and peace in Christ. We also get a new definition of prosperity, to know that in our union with Christ, we have God with us. God will never be separated from us. That No extent of hardship or pain or tribulation can separate us from God's love. And so the words of Psalm 73 are true. He holds our right hand. He guides us with counsel. He will receive us into glory. Even though our heart and our flesh may fail. He is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Now, it's important that we see what doesn't happen. It didn't happen in Psalm 73, and it doesn't happen usually in our life. What doesn't happen is that this encounter with God all of a sudden makes everything better. That all of a sudden God says, Okay, watch this while I make things right. Or that all of a sudden God says, I will give you exactly what it is that you want from everybody else. That's not what happens. But what we see is that God's word points us to encounter Jesus and to encounter Jesus who did things on our behalf. And we see a picture of prosperity that is very different. See, there's a lie that we're tempted to believe, and the lie is this, that if God really loves you and he really is going to bless you, then you should not have any hardship in your life. That's foolish for us to think because God's Son, Jesus, Whom God was fully pleased and loved with all his heart, Jesus experienced every hardship. We might think we should not have any temptation. Jesus experienced every temptation, the author of Hebrews tells us. He writes, he himself was suffered and tempted. And so because of that, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 12 tells us that God uses the trials and difficulties because he loves us. He uses those things to actually draw us nearer to himself so that our hearts aren't set on these other things, but that our heart's desire is truly nothing else on earth except him. And that's why it is good for us to be near God. And so when in Christ we see a glimpse of our future and we get a redefinition of prosperity and blessing, it humbles us turns our pride and our our sense of we deserve this turns that into a point of humility where we can receive god's grace once the psalmist realizes this he says he was like a brutish beast use any derivative of that that speaks to you and makes sense to you the image is that he had become like a beast of the field no soul that's how he was treating god but when he realized how close he had come to slipping, he saw how dear and good it was for him to be near God, and it humbled him. When you see how good God is towards you, you realize just how terrible you are, how brutish you can be, and it humbles us. Oftentimes, when we land in a place spiritually and emotionally, like Psalm 73 describes, it's usually because our view of God is often far too small. We need to encounter him. We need to find a way to have an encounter with God and gain a sense of how big he truly is and what a true blessing it is to be one of his people. And it's only an encounter with God that can change us. So if you're beginning to question, is it worth being one of God's people? You need that encounter with God the moment to draw near to Him, and it's through His Word as Christ is revealed, as we see the means of grace that God has laid out for us. That's how He draws us near. We need a bigger view of God in our lives daily. That's the only thing that can change our thinking. If you are in a place this morning where you can relate to Psalm 73, I encourage you To make God your refuge. Don't come before him with a list of things that you think you deserve. Even though he is gracious and he can answer each one of those things. Come understanding how it is that he loves you so much. He was willing to send his son to do on your behalf what you could never do. And extend to you a grace and a pardon that you don't deserve. What I love about Psalm 73 is... As God deals with the psalmist, it shows that God can take it. He can handle our emotions and he can handle our anger and he can handle our frustrations because he's dealt with them at the cross. And he can take those things that are directed maybe even towards him and he can reveal himself to us through his grace and his word in Christ. And he can change our hearts in a moment. This service can't do that. The sermon might not be able to do that. But it can happen in a moment, a true encounter with God. It can happen this week, it can happen tonight, it might even happen now. But we have to come to God and seek him through the way that he reveals himself to us. So I pray that God would give you his perspective. Seek Christ and ask for his help. Jesus has been there. He has been afflicted in every way and tempted in every way. And so scripture reminds us he is able to help us. Let us pray. Father, we need such strong reminders of your grace. You know how we can be so quickly led in our tunnel vision to see things from our perspective. And God, we need to see things from your perspective. We need to have eyes that see from an eternal perspective. Help us to understand that it is your nearness and your fellowship, your relationship, Father, that sustains us and gives us life. Help us not to get wrapped up with the pursuit of things that do not bring us closer to you. Lord, if we are wrestling this morning with the difficulties of life, wrestling with the envy and the ease that others seem to have, I pray you would release us from those chains by your grace. Reveal yourself to us. Help us to gain a true picture of your grace and your perfection and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.